0: Research is really important because by definition it's the only way to get new knowledge. There's so much that isn't yet known that it's just a cool time to be in science. I think at the end of the day what really gets us out of bed in the morning is just the curiosity, trying to understand things we didn't understand the day before.
1: Welcome to REACH, the podcast that tells the stories of researchers, their studies, and how their work impacts you and the world you live in. I'm Cole Cullen.
2: And I'm Beth Bamford. Today, we're going to tell you about the family. More specifically, the research being done at Penn State about families. This is the first episode of the REACH podcast. Each episode has a theme. The theme of this episode is families.
1: Our first researcher is Paul Morgan. He is with the Department of Educational Policy Studies at Penn State.
2: Dr. Morgan specializes in setting kids up for success in their early years.
1: Beth and I are both parents and we've had experiences and challenges with our own children going through their early years of education so we can understand how important this kind of research is for students and their parents.
3: My name is Paul Morgan. I'm a professor at Penn State. I conduct research Uh, that examines risk factors for different disability conditions. I try and understand um, what happens to children over time as they move through school and how we can better help children, especially those children who might be at risk for having disabilities or maybe struggling academically or behaviorally in school. Tell me where you started and how you got here after college i started working with boys with emotional and behavioral disorders in an outdoor camp many of these children were court sent because of various offenses they'd committed as juveniles and i became really interested in how children develop and the kind of choices they make over time as a result of that i uh, ended up going back to get a uh, master's degree to become a special ed teacher and so i taught as an elementary uh, self-contained and uh, resource teacher for a number of years. Then I went back to school and sort of furthered my training in how to understand development, not just kind of anecdotally or from a case-to-case perspective, but more from kind of a population-based perspective. Who is likely to struggle and how can we better help those children is sort of a, a really motivating uh, a set of questions that guide my research.
1: When you say struggle, mm-hmm. how do you define struggle?
3: So one of the things that I noticed when I was a special ed teacher is that by th- uh, third or fourth grade, some of the children I was working with, if we were done with the, kind of the academic tasks in my classroom, and I said, okay, well, just use this free time to get some reading done. Here's here's some books you can turn to. For some children, that was a really kind of adverse type of dis- choice I'd given them. They didn't want to do that at all. And I was kind of surprised by that and like, well, why, why are children this young, from my perspective and their development, starting to turn away from something that I th- know as an adult is really important? And so I started to under- trying to look at um, why do children start to struggle in reading and also uh, kind of what are the behavioral consequences of that? And one of the things that I looked at through a line of research is is whether children who are struggling academically, does that start to affect their social emotional development? And, you know, through a series of studies have found that that there seems to be evidence of that.
1: So is it safe to say that, I mean, you were in the classroom, you were on the front lines essentially, and, and you saw a need which kind of motivated your
3: research? Right, that's right. When I was going through graduate training, there were very few longitudinal studies of children's academic development and a typical instructional response that you would have from teachers is well let's wait and see so you know johnny is having difficulties in kindergarten or first grade that's okay that happens he'll grow out of it there's been a lot more longitudinal studies of that phenomenon which clearly indicate across a number of academic domains that that tends not to happen kids that struggle early tend to struggle later which is moved much of the conversation from a wait and see perspective to more like, well, that's really kind of a wait and fail perspective. And we should be, for especially those kids who are repeatedly struggling in kindergarten or first grade, we really need to be trying to deliver more intensive interventions. Otherwise, they're likely to continue to struggle. And what tends to happen is then other things start to kick in as well. So now Johnny's not just struggling in reading. Now he, he really hates reading and he doesn't want to do it, that makes it worse. And when you ask him to read, he might lash out. Well, that's another problem that's difficult to address. But these things kind of compound over time. So uh, kind of a line of the research that uh, I've been um, hoping to lead and conduct is that a sizable number of the kids that struggle early, those kids really do need extra supports, or else we're just sort of shrugging our shoulders and letting them continue to to struggle and and become worse off as a result. So there's an office in the US Department of Education called the National Center for Education Statistics, and they specialize in collecting large samples of children, some of whom are followed across time. These studies would be well beyond the resources of any individual research team or even university. 20,000 children initially who were then repeatedly assessed Children's academic achievement is individually assessed. Parents are assessed in regards to the children's behavior or characteristics of the home. Teachers can complete surveys of the children's development. Um, Characteristics of the school or the community are also collected. And then they make this data accessible to researchers across the country. So we're not working with real kids, but the data represents real kids. Uh, and their performance on these assessments. And because of the rich data collection on these children, it allows you to investigate a range of different questions. One set of questions that we've been investigating uh, pertain to cognitive characteristics of children, which are referred to uh, as executive functions, and how they relate to children's academic achievement across time.
1: Elaborate a little bit on Mm -hmm. what an executive function is. Sure.
3: So executive functions are sometimes referred to as the air traffic controller of the brain. So you as a learner um, have a lot of uh, inputs that are coming in and you're making decisions about how to use and organize that information. Three main types are referred to as working memory, cognitive flexibility, and inhibitory control. Working memory is the ability to store and manipulate for a brief amount of time, some Amount of information. If I give you a string of numbers, say one, two, three, four, five, and ask you to repeat them back to me in reverse order, you've taken that inf- that information and then m- manipulated it in some kind of way.
1: Five, four, three, two, one.
3: Good answer. Thank you. Yes, and I can make that task more complex than that. That's okay. Um, uh, but that's that's the idea: is you're taking in and using for a brief amount of time information, you're manipulating that information. Another type of executive function is called cognitive flexibility. This is the ability to process information giving changing rules. So a simple task for this that you might give children is I give you a set of cards and they vary in terms of the color of the card and the the border type that the card has. And I ask you to sort them in different ways, changing around the rule in which you process. Uh, Another main type of executive function is called inhibitory control. And this is when you um, down-regulate an initial response that you might make. So in the classroom, this might be the child that wants to blurt out the answer, but instead remembers he's supposed to raise his hand. So he's down-regulating, holding off on the initial response he wants to give, and instead selecting something that's more appropriate. These are cognitive processes that have been hypothesized to relate to children's learning in classrooms. And there's been a good deal of study, but there's been some limitations of the research, too. So we took the data that has been collected by the Department of Education and made available to researchers. We've applied a new method to understand that, and we can identify kids that seem to come into kindergarten and start pretty high academically and tend to stay high. But we can also identify classes of kids who come into kindergarten classrooms in the United States, and tend to start pretty low, and then they tend to stay low. So relative to their peers, they might display pretty significant achievement gaps across time. We wondered, well, who are the kids that are especially likely to display low levels of achievement in reading, math, and science? And that's where the executive function part comes in. What we found is that, indeed, it seems to be the case that if you have a deficit in working memory, cognitive flexibility, or inhibitory control, that those children uh, were more likely to struggle academically across uh, uh, multiple elementary grades. I would be concerned as a parent if my children were displaying that level of academic struggle across time.
1: You're not saying that these kids are lost causes. You're, I am not saying that. You're saying no. let's, let's help them right. earlier.
3: Let's, yeah, yeah, it's never too late to help a child. These struggles may be due to a disability. It may be due to kind of a, an instructional mismatch with what's going on in the classroom. There are different reasons why it might be occurring, and, and certainly we want to consider multiple explanations. But the, to me, the last thing we want to do is just kind of throw up our hands. That's just making the problem harder to address because the child's academic struggles will tend to start influencing or affecting other aspects of his or her, her uh, development. This kind of research suggests it's really important to assess children early and repeatedly on general measures of achievement and then use the knowledge that's obtained from, from those assessments, to identify those sh- children who are off track and provide additional supports f- for those children. For those kids, we need to be a particularly worried and be providing all the additional help that we're able to provide. Without the kind of research that we're conducting, we'd know a lot less about, in my view, how to help children grow and succeed. And it's important to do this in a way that's scientific and not just based on anecdote, because there's a, Long history of anecdote leading leading us to kind of um, places that we don't want to be or uh, situations we don't want. Um, so, what I'm trying to do is conduct scientific investigations that are rigorous and stand the test of time in terms of evidence. Because if the investigation meets those conditions it's more likely to inform f- future, future decision-making, future practice. Those kinds of investigations that are um, scientific and rigorous, they require resources, they require time, they require personnel, they require um, um, funds, uh, and they're difficult to do in a place that isn't able to provide time and resources um, and the supports needed to conduct high quality science that informs the human condition. Um, Penn State is one of those, in my view, one of those uh, institutions that really excels at providing resources to support scientific inquiry that advances the human condition.
2: Our next researcher is Dr. Ofeo Buxton, a neuroscientist that studies sleep. Cole, you sat down with Dr. Buxton. What did you learn?
1: I learned that sleep is very important to many aspects of your life. I also learned that the amount of sleep that I want to get is actually the proper amount of sleep that I should get. But I don't necessarily get that much sleep because no one leaves me alone when I'm at home.
2: Maybe your work will send you home with a note to your family that says that that you need to get enough sleep every night to to perform highly at work. We'll see how that goes.
4: Hi, I'm Orfeo Buxton, professor of biobehavioral health at the Pennsylvania State University. I'm a neuroscientist by training. I um, fell in love with neuroscience at the University of Pittsburgh uh, as an undergraduate and then went to Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois for my graduate work in neuroscience. During that period also did lots of sleep experiments and I didn't consider them sleep experiments at the time but they were fundamental explorations of ideas that I now understand better as sleep research. So for example trying to find the right amount of time that you need to be your best in the morning. I did that experiment in college uh, on myself. And so over the course of doing many of those types of experiments and in denial that I needed more sleep than I was getting, I came to have a deep appreciation for how embedded sleep and circadian rhythms were in our everyday lives. Circadian rhythms are 24-hour biological rhythms uh, in the body, and they... Occur in the absence of any environmental input, so it's not that it's light or dark because of the sun. It's that we have an endogenous or generated rhythm in our body, uh, in our brain that modulates physiology throughout our brain and our body.
1: So let's talk about the Fragile Family Study, how you got involved in it, and you know maybe some of the initial
4: goals of the study. So the Fragile Family Study is an amazing effort that started in the late 90s uh, out of Princeton. Mothers were recruited when they were in the hospital to give birth, and it was oversampled for single mothers such that the resulting sample was enriched for those of lower socioeconomic status, less educational attainment, and so on. And we came in with an R01, a typical National Institute of Health or NIH grant uh, at age 15 specifically just to add the sleep and uh, daily diary and physical activity. So we asked the participants when they were now teens to wear a a watch that was an accelerometer or tracks their sleep patterns and a physical activity monitor on their waist that tracks their exercise and sedentary activity patterns. And then we were able to, when all those data were collected, relate their household structure and their upbringing and how... Uh, parenting had gone for them, say, around bedtimes, how all of those factors, including family structure, influenced their health behaviors of sleep and physical activity at 15, their health risk behaviors, such as sedentary behavior, and associate those with things that were context, like their local school start time, uh, household factors, how things were with their parents and how things were for them at school, in their personal life, and with their friends. Nobody had done this scale of national study in teens with these types of measurements, with decades of prior data collected on not only those people, but other members of their family. Were you looking for specific
1: things? Was this just an opportunity to study sleep in general?
4: We were interested in targeting contextual factors, and sociodemographic factors that predicted sleep in teenagers. So family structure, uh, poverty, those kinds of things, all the way through childhood. Because we were interested in sleep disparities, we were also interested in how uh, daily patterns of sleep and physical activity would influence other factors related to well-being, and also what predicted the sleep and physical activity levels. First, to no one's surprise, we've replicated prior findings that most kids and teens are sleep deprived. At least half are getting less than the recommended minimum amount of sleep. It may be that teens are the most sleep deprived segment of the US population right now. I'd like to talk about the National Sleep Foundation Sleep in America poll, and we published a paper in 2015 looking at sleep duration and sleep quality and U.S. children and adolescents. We looked in households for predictors of that short sleep and poor quality, and we found that parenting and household factors around devices mattered for kids and teen sleep. Factors that caused children to not get age-appropriate amounts of sleep included kids who had caffeine. The ideal group was that parents always limited kids' caffeine. Only those children had age-appropriate sleep duration, or they were much more likely to have age-appropriate sleep duration when their parents limited their caffeine. If they had one device or more on in their bedroom overnight, they were much less likely to get age-appropriate sleep if they had no devices on in their bedroom overnight. They were much more likely to get age-appropriate sleep. For sleep quality, we found that uh, children having a bedtime improved their sleep quality. So this is getting back to the idea of the regularity of sleep. Timing and duration is probably as important as the amount. If they had a regular bedtime, then those kids were much more likely to sleep well. If your bedtime varies a lot, you're essentially fighting your circadian rhythm that wants you to go to sleep about the same time each day. So even if you're really sleepy, it's hard to go to sleep before your circadian system would allow it. And the other factor predicting poor sleep quality in this sample of uh, kids and adolescents was, not surprisingly, having a device on in the bedroom. So just like with sleep duration, having a device on in the bedroom overnight degrades sleep quality in kids and adolescents. So this is data from 2015. I would say since then, the penetration of smartphones into the very being of children, it's really a problem for sleep at night if a smartphone or other devices are around it really didn't matter the kind of content or device or the type of thing that they were doing all of those through all of those pathways further increased depressive symptoms those effects of device use on depressive symptoms were mediated by these different uh, sleep disruptions that they caused
1: this is not meant to sound disrespectful to the research but you tell me kids shouldn't have devices when they go to bed and they shouldn't have caffeine before they go to bed. Well, no kidding. I'm a parent and I, I know these things and I didn't need a researcher to tell me. So having done the research and having actually the, the knowledge and the proof to back it up, how
4: does, how does that help the family ultimately? You're on to a very important point. So all of this research that I'm describing has an orientation where we are attempting to design an intervention to change what needs to be done. So you say everybody knows this, yet it's not happening. So there's a difference between knowing what's good for you, eating your broccoli, and actually eating the broccoli. And so this research is designed to move to the eating rather than to just the knowing that the eating is good. A finding that is particularly interesting in the fragile family study is the longitudinal observation of childhood um, bedtime routines and sleep at age 5 and 9, and how those influence or predict age 15 sleep and health. So in that study, led by Sumi Lee, an HDFS graduate student at Penn State, now a faculty member at the University of South Florida, Sumi uh, put together a latent class analysis where we looked at different types of sleepers and parenting strategies in children to see what would happen when they were teens. And what we found is that only about a quarter of kids had age-appropriate bedtimes, and not surprisingly, they got age-appropriate sleep duration on average. So we know parenting and bedtimes matter for getting adequate sleep. Other groups, the higher-risk groups, had uh, little or no bedtime, and they didn't get age-appropriate sleep. What we found is that those groups then predicted their sleep as a teen. So having no bedtime and not getting enough sleep as children predicts not having a bedtime and not getting enough sleep when you're 15. And then they also have higher BMI as a teen. So it's influencing not only their future behaviors, it's influencing their future health. And if you already have a higher BMI as a teen, that's predicting long-term cardiometabolic consequences happening earlier than they would for a typical adult. How we conclude from those findings is that parenting matters. You don't always get to feel that as a parent, but a bedtime really matters. For the next day, how they are at school, how they are with other people, lots of elements of success, but also predicts uh, their sleeping patterns and health behaviors when they're teens and says a lot about their physical and mental health.
1: Sleep is important. Can't sniffle.
2: Oh, are we on? (laughs) We're
1: going? We're we're going. Uh, I
2: didn't get enough sleep last night.
1: Not only is sleep important, but aging in a healthy way is also important.
2: Our last interview is with Dr. Martin Slowinski and he talks about how we can lay the foundation for healthy aging.
0: I'm Marty Slowinski. I'm a professor in human development and family studies, um, and I also direct the Center for Healthy Aging.
2: Part of this podcast is to share your research and your story with um, regular everyday people. So why would everyday people care about what you're working on? So I think
0: we'd all like to do better, to be better, to perform better at work, um, you know, to make fewer mistakes and find ways to optimize our lives. And uh, the work we're doing is directly related to how to help people do that. And uh, this relates to people like yourself who may just want to make fewer mistakes at work or be more mentally sharp or more productive. But it's also important when you think about people who are a little bit older, um, where uh, a cognitive error they make, a mistake, could be high stakes. So imagine a person in their 70s who's driving, who their uh, vision isn't quite as good, their reflexes aren't quite as sharp, and if they're preoccupied with stress, they're more likely to be distracted and make a mistake. That can lead to a high-stakes cognitive error and a crash. So what we think we can do with this technology and this approach is to try and identify when people are in those high-risk situations and intervene before the problems happen. And one of the ways in which you can do that is to focus on not just managing illness and disease and disability. That's very, very important work. But we're really interested in what people can do um, when they're younger, um, when they're in their 30s, 40s, midlife, 50s, 60s, what they can do to lay the foundation for healthy aging as they move into their 70s, 80s, 90s, and over 100. Um, And the work we're doing is trying to provide cost-effective ways for uh, uh, using digital health methods to help people uh, prevent problems before they happen, identify what needs to be addressed, and also, importantly, reassure people if things are going okay so they don't worry needlessly about issues that really aren't issues. When you look at how society is changing, we're at the, the turning point of a sort of a cultural climate change um, in. Uh, 2035, in, in about 15 years, for the first time in human history, there will be more people aged 65 and above than young people aged 18 and under. Um, that tipping point is really going to change how society's made up. The number of centenarians, people who live to be 100 years or older, is going to increase by about 600% over the next 40 years, and there'll be over 600,000 people in the United States by 2060 who are 100 years or older. That's three times the size of the city of Pittsburgh. And we don't know what to do with them, right? And they don't know what to do with themselves. And we need to figure that out. And and one thing I can say for sure is that a healthier 50-year-old makes a healthier 100-year-old. So it's never too early to start thinking about what your second life is going to be like. You know, it used to be that for some of these types of um, tests we wanted to do, we'd have to bring people into the lab or the clinic and use a computer to do that or have a trained uh, technician or research assistant administer a test. But now the computers that we carry with us in our pockets, um, smartphones, are way more powerful than what used to sit on our desktops even just 10 years ago. Um, So that's really opened up the doors to where we can... Uh, put a laboratory in everyone's pocket, essentially. Um, and we use not only the smartphones to ask people questions or have them play brain games, we can use the smartphones to measure their physical activity, uh, their posture. Um, our colleagues in Sage Networks have developed algorithms uh, where we can um, evaluate gait abnormalities in people with Parkinson's disease just by having them keep the smartphone in their pockets. And We're actually already doing using the mobile technology in a study in the Bronx, New York, to try and and see how we can improve the early detection of Alzheimer's disease, hopefully uh, to improve interventions to prevent it.
2: So you've identified your sample population, you have the technology available to collect the data. What do you do after that?
0: So after we collect the data, um, that's actually where the fun begins. It's, it's It's a rich environment for for being able to um, do this kind of research, but sometimes we have so much information we don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. So we, we work with colleagues um, in engineering and in our own department who are experts in machine learning and other types of um, uh, sort of high-intensity computing analytics to try and make sense of all the different data streams we get. We also are interested in trying to improve uh, the ability to be able to detect Um, subtle cognitive changes that uh, precede the development of things like Alzheimer's disease. So finding ways to do that a little bit more efficiently. Um, And uh, we're working on two projects that have a bearing on that. You know, in some ways, um, we begin to age physically and cognitively in our 20s and and early 30s. So what are things you can do? Um, These are the common sense things. Diet is very, very important, and not just you know eating the right foods or, or uh, not eating too much, but there are certain kinds of diet that may be very beneficial for your brain health. Um, so we're doing a study on the Mediterranean diet and to see whether or not people who are taught how to eat according to the Mediterranean diet, um, you know, nuts, uh, uh, healthy oils, reducing the amount of dairy people eat, whether that improves brain health and reduces the risk for Alzheimer's disease, and beginning to do that in your 30s and 40s is better than waiting until you're in your 70s or 80s.
2: What made you interested in this type of research?
0: I, you know, I may have been destined to uh, work in the area of aging from when I was a little kid. My parents were older when they had me. So my dad was 48. My mom was 42. I uh, They tell me I ruined their retirement. Um, <laughs> so I w- was always sort of around people who were a little bit older, um, And I had to experience firsthand some of the challenges that happened to aging parents when I was still, uh, you know, my 20s and 30s. And that's maybe why I was kind of destined or or interested in this topic. And a little bit was just by chance was what the opportunities uh, were before me when I was in graduate school.
2: My parents are in their 70s. And, you know, I'm always worried about what um, could be happening to them. And so it sounds like the things you're working on sort of are relevant to to my parents. So what is that? Are there things that they can do now or learn from your study now?
0: Ultimately, what we'd like to do is to provi- be able to provide um, user-friendly tools, engaging tools that people like your parents uh, could use that could help monitor um, their functioning, uh, their emotional functioning, their cognitive functioning, their, their physical health, and identify issues before they become issues. So not to try and solve a problem after it's happened, but you know, trying to say, "Hey, your balance and gait has been a little bit odd, um, a little bit unusual. Maybe you should go to the doctor, and there could be a medication before they fall." So I think the tools we're developing, ultimately, I'd want to see them in the hands of people like you and your parents, so we can you know make people's lives better in that way. Mm-hmm. Technology lets us do that. If we're interested in trying to understand how everything that transpires on a daily basis happens to us, um, we have our smartphones. And our smartphones allow us to capture this information in very precise and and user-friendly ways. In the center, we're really interested not just in promoting health um, of individuals, but promoting ways in which people from different generations can communicate with each other. And I think just even having a, a you know, a session, a, a podcast like this, where we talk about issues related to aging and just get this out in people's attention in the, in the public gear, um, that's really, really very valuable.
2: Thank you for listening to REACH. And a special thank you to Drs. Paul Morgan, Orfeo Buxton, and Martin Slowinski.
1: And don't forget, all the episodes of REACH can be found on our website. Please consider making a contribution to WPSU so that we can bring you content like this. Visit WPSU.org donate. Thanks.